Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Google. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Today kicks off a really fun series. I think that anyone out there who's been listening to this podcast for the year, year plus, I should say, that we've been recording these, you've heard me talk about the majority of these players before. The real meat and potatoes to this exercise is when we get past the 2020 draft class. But in in doing the evaluations and the research for 2021, I decided to, for the really the first time, move away from a ranking system and go to a tier-based system where I'm not numbering guys within tiers. I'm not saying that this guy is number one and this guy's number five and this guy's number 10. I'm trying to tier them off in terms of where I think their role's going to be in the NBA, what their ceilings are, and then also sort of throw some logic into there um, regarding contract. Like, is this guy like a max contract player? Is he going to be a near max guy? Is this somebody you target in like the 10 to $15 million a year range, et cetera, et cetera. So I've created this tier system that I'm very comfortable with. It came out to seven tiers. And I wanted to actually go back while we have some downtime in the off season here and apply that tier system to previous draft classes. So like I said, I didn't do this last year. I did do a number ranking for 2020, but 2019, 2018, 2017, I mean, we go back that far as far as 2017, we're not going to be talking about as many guys on that podcast. We're going to have to deep dive a little more because there are going to be guys that I'm just not putting in a tier anymore because they've either phased out of the league. We, we see them phasing out of the league, et cetera. So that part of the exercise is going to be incredibly interesting. 2020. Yes. The, I do have some thoughts, but we're still going to be rattling off a decent number of guys because we're only one year into their NBA careers. Some of them, who could be on this list haven't even technically gotten much NBA playing time. So it is way too early to judge these guys. It, it's way too early to say that anyone who I'm talking about within a tier or even guys who I didn't end up putting in a tier, it's still way too early to figure out what exactly their career is going to look like and definitely like plant my flag. Right. So this exercise today is all about still technically projecting, but it's projecting with one full year of NBA playing time, statistical evidence, film evidence. So without further ado, I want to get into this right away. We're going to start right at the top. So I have guys, I, I went as far as six tiers deep. And again, when you get into like a tier seven, type exercise that that's generally something that's reserved for when I'm actually going through and, and breaking down a specific draft class. I'm not going to go like 90 to hundred players deep for this exercise. Really, this is all about focusing on who specifically was drafted. So evaluating out of the actual 60 draft picks that were made in the draft. If there are any notable undrafted guys who have played their way into significant roles that did not come up for, for 2020 yet. I don't know if it will. I think the guys, the majority of the guys that were drafted are the NBA talent that we're going to see out of the 2020 class. But if that comes up, when I go back and go through 2019, 2018, 2017, those guys may be included in a tier 
or they may just get a shout out at the end, like I have a few guys set aside for. So really, again, we're looking at those 60 guys. I tiered out 47 of them. So there are 47 players here that I have worthy of being in a tier two through a tier six. Now, some of you listening out there already might be going, well, Nate, what about tier one? I didn't have any tier one guys, honestly, in this draft class to begin with. And I don't see any guys who have justified moving up into a tier one quite yet, to be perfectly honest. I, I have four guys in tier two. You can gladly make an argument that two of those guys should be a tier or two. Uh, yeah, in some people's eyes, one of them might even be like two tiers below. You can make that argument. I'm I'm not... I'm not jumping off of the James Wiseman Island just yet, and I'll get to his case in a second. He's one of those guys. Um, two of them, Anthony Edwards and Lamella Ball, listen, they are obvious, plain as day. These guys are, they may not be MVP caliber necessarily, but they are max contract guys. They are franchise building blocks. They're going to be in Minnesota and Charlotte, respectively, for years to come. And I didn't see the need to definitely mess with their rankings within tiers, but James Wiseman and Tyrese Halliburton, definitely some arguments to be had. So let's start, let's start with James Wiseman. So one of those prospects who has taken an unbelievable amount of heat after his rookie year, he was a consensus top three player in the 2020 draft class, there are, or was, I should say, a contingent of evaluators, scouts, fans, draft Twitter, who didn't have James Wiseman as a top three player because they thought that he was way too raw. They did not care for his understanding of the game. There were some, some work ethics some motor concerns dating back to high school. So when you're able to wrap up a package like that with a player of Wiseman's magnitude, of his stature from a name perspective, all of a sudden it becomes a more popular thing to kind of nitpick one of the top three guys than maybe if this was a guy who had some of those concerns that was like 20 to 25 to 30 down a board, right? It becomes a lot easier to point the finger at somebody like James Wiseman and say, okay, these are legitimate concerns. We need to put stock in this. I'm not comfortable taking him with a top three pick. And that's fine. Some people wouldn't have been comfortable taking him with a top three pick. The Golden State Warriors were comfortable enough to take him with the number two pick. Now, it's really interesting because before the draft, there were a bunch of rumors about who they were interested in. It was not clear whether it was Edwards or even Ball. There was some Tyrese Halliburton discussion in there with Golden State. But after the draft, it seemed like Steve Kerr, Bob Myers, the impression that players on the team, the coaching staff, the front office gave was that Wiseman was their guy all along, and that was the guy they were happy to get. What I don't think Golden State fully understood and maybe they did. I'm not saying that they definitely didn't. But what they might not have fully understood was that one of those three things I do believe to be true, one of those three criticisms, and that is he is incredibly raw. 
I knew that coming in from the jump. And I was one of the people out in the forefront saying, you have to be patient with James Wiseman. He has played limited basketball at a high level. He only played three games in Memphis before all that crap went down. He was going to take time to adjust to the speed of the NBA game, some of the sets and some of the concepts and play designs, or should I say lack thereof, that Golden State runs. Golden State's a very motion-heavy offensive team. It's a lot of read and react, and it's a lot of sort of understanding what your teammates do well and once they get themselves in the position, how do you react? How do you utilize where to best put yourself on the court to match what they're doing? And it's a lot of nonverbal communication because Steph, Clay, Draymond, guys like that, or other guys that have played the system, Iguodala, you you go you go down the line. These are incredibly smart basketball players. And they also had years of building that level of chemistry to the point where, yeah, like. Steph knows where he needs to be if he doesn't have the ball in his hands. Draymond knows A, B, and C where he's going out of a out of, out of a short roll, playmaking out of a short roll on the pick and roll. Like these guys know where they need to be. Clay Thompson obviously knows where he needs to be moving without the basketball, or if he does decide to attack a closeout. Generally, the other two guys um, right there in terms of star power, Steph and Draymond, they know how to react off of one of his drives to the basket. Like these guys know how to play basketball with each other. And that's something I don't think James Wiseman has really ever been exposed to before. So not only is he just young, period, he was a rookie coming into the NBA, he was also young from that element of the game of basketball, that he has to come in and figure out how to gel with a bunch of guys who have been playing together way longer than he's been playing with any other particular player and he's not this three-point shooter that you can just stick in the corner and wherever the ball ends up landing, if it lands in his hands, you can trust him to just jack up a jump shot and that's going to be his, his primary form of offense. No, he's he's a transition threat. He's an athletic rim-running big man. He's he's a role man, although he didn't necessarily excel at, at some of that in the half court in his rookie year. But like that's what his offensive role is. And... He can do a few creative things off the dribble. He showed some of that in high school. If you go back and watch some of that tape a little bit, he can hit jump shots. I think that while he did struggle to shoot efficiently this year, the jump shot mechanics look good. That's going to be something that he can go to in time. Those are not his natural ways of producing points and expecting too much from him, expecting him to be, justifying his number two overall pick status in his rookie year coming in being the starting big man for a team that's not only trying to contend for a playoff spot but to potentially contend for a championship like I'm sorry those were way too high of expectations to put on this kid and it's really interesting I just did the podcast with with Chad Ford where we were going through are our rookie sophomore junior players out of those three classes who are the 10 guys that we're confident in are going to succeed or have better years next year in a big way James Wiseman didn't make either one of our lists but Chad at least mentioned him before we cut off the podcast and and he didn't make my list because I think he's going to struggle with a lot of the same things in year two I I don't think Wiseman's going to start popping until like year three year four and 
listen, when he does pop, when he's comfortable operating within the flow of the game, certainly on offense, when he's more accustomed to what he needs to be doing on a consistent basis on the defensive end, and when he's able to mix in a little more of that skill, that's when we're really going to see this monster takeoff from Wiseman. And I still think, just given his size, his athletic package, his tools, the potential he brings to the table from a skills perspective, like I just think that that, that package is way too enticing to not draft in the top three. And I think that he's going to have a big year eventually. It's just, it wasn't going to be last year. I don't think it's going to be this year, but that doesn't mean I'm knocking him out of my tier two. It is to me, it's still way too early to make that proclamation. And if I had to take a bet to the books today, I would still make that bet that Wiseman ends up being a max caliber big man. It's just, it's, it's going to take time, but he's in a really good developmental spot in Golden State for all of the things I can point to that make some of their schemes complicated at the same time, if Wiseman's able to pick those things up and he's able to sort of enter into that marriage with Steph and Dre and, uh, Steph and, and Dre and Clay. And like, at some point he's able to mesh with those guys. And it's funny. Coach Thorpe always uses the term basketball as jazz. If he's able to, to play along in the melody with those guys, he might be so much further along than some of the other guys in, in, in his draft class, some of his peers, because they're dealing with about three to five of the same concepts and Wiseman's learning how to figure out playing within a scheme that is based on nonverbal communication, based on read, react, based on awareness, based on IQ. I think that can only help him in the long term. It just may hurt a little more than your traditional rookie who's getting a lot of reps, just filling the lane, running the floor in transition, sprinting to the corner maybe doing a little bit of stuff out of pick and roll. I think what Wiseman will eventually be doing will be a lot more valuable to his long-term growth and, and development. So the other guy that I have in that tier two, who people would also argue with me with is Tyrese Halliburton. And I did not have Tyrese Halliburton ranked in the top five, but his play last year for the Sacramento Kings, I mean, good gravy. I went over a few of the numbers with, with Chad when, when I was on his podcast, but he shot 47% from the field, almost 41% from three, 86% from the line. He averaged over a steal per game. He had an above average PER rating, which is great for a rookie. Usually the vast majority of rookies, the majority of rookies who I could certainly talk about, reading through these numbers that I have in my spreadsheet here. I mean, they're going to be PERs that are below the league average. They're going to be below 15. When you have rookies that can contribute around that league average mark to above it. I mean, that that's awesome. That's spectacular. That means that while they may certainly not be perfect, it means that their fit was a little bit easier in the league than, than it is for, for some of the other people, but it's true shooting percentage, 58 and a half percent true shooting percentage 71st percentile in pick and roll offense is the ball handler 76 scoring out of spot ups 86 scoring off screens 93rd scoring out of transition all of his jump shooting metrics one of the biggest questions about his offensive game was his jump shooting how is it going to translate 
Well, he was in the 79th percentile shooting jump shots in the league last year, 76th percentile on runners, 74th percentile in catch and shoot looks, shooting 40% on catch and shoot shots, 78th percentile shooting off the dribble. He shot 39% off the dribble for a guard whose jump shot was supposed to be broken or the mechanics were funky and nobody really knew how it was going to, to translate. Spent way too much time bringing the ball up. The shot was slow. For, for all of those criticisms from everyone, myself included, he's made it work. This is not like Lonzo Ball, who shot it decently well in college, as Halliburton did, but the percentages tailed off right away once Lonzo Ball got into the NBA. That was the sign of a, of a broken jumper. Or maybe broken is not necessarily the best word to use, but a jumper that was hindered and definitely needed work. Those are the signs that point to that. Not what Tyrese Halliburton did last year. Um, his command of the offense when he does get involved in pick and roll sets, his awareness off the ball where he needs to be on the floor at all times. I mean, his 93rd percentile rating scoring in transition, that that is awesome because that means that when he doesn't have the ball in his hands, He's immediately looking to break and fill a lane and make everything easier for his team around him. And he's choosing the right lane to fill. He's meshing well with his teammates in transition. He's not coughing up the ball, turning it over. When he gets the ball in his hands in transition, he's making the most of those opportunities and finishing, helping to put those easy points on the board for his team. There's just so many little things to point to about Halliburton's game where he might not be this this superstar type player, but I can assure you that somebody who is this fundamentally sound in so many different areas offensively, who showed a lot of promise defending off the ball in college, and I think is certainly going to keep making improvements on that end as well. I think both on the ball and off the ball defensively, him utilizing his length, playing angles, like, I just see still so many areas on both ends where he can improve that, like, is he going to be creating, like, 15 to 20 shots for himself per game and scoring, like, 35 points a game? Like, no. Now, Halliburton, Halliburton's not going to do that on a night-to-night basis, but he's absolutely going to be somebody who can give you, like, 15 to 20 points per game, five to seven or eight assists, depending on how much responsibility he's asked to do from a playmaking standpoint, he's going to shoot the ball efficiently from the field. He's not going to turn the ball over a bunch. I mean, he he had 5.3 assists per game last year and only 1.6 turnovers per game. He's already coming in with a better than three to one assist to turnover ratio. And he wasn't even the full-time point guard. Like if Halliburton starts, at least how this team's still constructed, barring any sort of trade, he's still playing next to De'Aaron Fox. Fox is the point guard. Halliburton is a combo guard. I'd venture to say he actually does play more and operate more like a shooting guard, but he was the point guard for Iowa State. But that type of a player who just does all the right things on the floor, that's the type of guy that every single NBA team wants in their starting lineup. You 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 can argue with me all you want, whether you think Halliburton's statistical output is going to warrant that of a max contract i'm telling you right now if he's with the sacramento kings when his time comes 
and he's not traded in any sort of move. There's been a lot of Ben Simmons talk, but I, I can assure you that kid's going to find a way to get the, the, the rookie max extension. I can assure you that. And then obviously Anthony Edwards, Lamella Ball. If you didn't hear a lot of what I said on Chad Ford's podcast, you can gladly, if you haven't already, please go over to his feed and, and listen to that show where I certainly broke down why I think Anthony Edwards and Lamella Ball are going to have great years next year, apart from the rookie year that they already had. They are well on their way to being franchise cornerstone players. I got no complaints about either of those two guys. All four of them I have as tier two players. So it's funny, there may not be any tier one guys, but the 2021 draft class, I had two tier one guys. I only had two tier two guys. This one at least has four tier two guys. So while two of them might not be like MVP caliber players, at least in my opinion, those are still the same number of four guys who I think can earn max contracts or be max contract type of players. That's, that's still a hell of a crop. It's a hell of a collection of talent. These last two drafts in particular, we'll see it. I mean, I had, so from tiers one to three in 2021, I had 21 guys. So from tiers two and three, that I'm going back and doing now, I have 18 guys. So that means that between both 2020 and 2021, that's 39 guys I'm envisioning being starters at some point in their career in the NBA. That's remarkable, considering there's 30 teams, five starting spots. There's 150 starting spots in the league. So basically the proclamation that you make and, and and I understand the stance that I'm taking, maybe some draft evaluators when they want to be high on this guy and that guy and the third guy that they don't understand what that actually means that there are only so many jobs in the league that can be had. No, I'm understanding what I'm saying that almost a third of the league's starting jobs could at some point be populated by guys from the 2020 and 2021 draft class. I, I would really have to go back and do some hard research. I'm sure that somebody's already done the research, but that type of influx of talent is unheard of. It's incredible. I really don't have any other words past that. I, I cannot believe that I'm giving out so many high grades to these guys that I have so many guys in a tier one through a tier three between both draft classes. It's just, it, it's, it, it's amazing where the game of basketball is going. Obviously it's become a global game. There's been a lot more focus on basketball, especially since the NBA itself has become a much more lucrative sport than it was even five to 10 years ago. There's a lot more emphasis on the two biggest sports in this country are football and basketball. Baseball is, is still right there. It's a very traditional sport, but when you look at not only just the contracts within the sport, but everything that comes along with it, the, the, the off the court or off the field deals, the, the, the endorsement deals, the everything that comes with being the celebrity that you are as a professional player in either one of these leagues, 
football has that violent aspect to it and players still may want to play it, but we're also coming up at a point where a lot of these parents or guardians that are in charge of taking these players to practices and, and taking care of their well-being, they're looking at basketball and they're like, yeah, people get hurt playing basketball too, but it's not the same kind of contact sport that football is. So basketball has as wide of an avenue for talent as it ever did because of the type of sport that it is and the money coming in that, man, I, I'm really excited to evaluate the 2022 draft class and to, to keep digging into more of that. And I will be really interested to see if we're three for three in terms of the number of potential high-level grades that, that I'm giving out. That's going to be really exciting. But I got a little got a little off topic there, but nevertheless, it all, it all wraps up and it all comes back together. So those are my Tier 2 guys. Let's move on to Tier 3. So Tier 3, I have 14 guys. Was almost 13. Was almost 13. There's one guy in here that I was on the border of making a tier four. So in case anyone needs a refresher, tier three means that I see them. I, I think they're they're guaranteed at some point in their career to be the first, second, third, or fourth best guy on, on a championship or, or, or really good NBA team. So you're like a guaranteed one through four starter. I had this guy number one overall on my board last year. And this one hurts because, listen, we're, we're, we're scouts. We understand that there comes a point where you can be wrong about an evaluation. We all make mistakes. We all play into different narratives. We all, at, at some point, play into personal biases. That, that stuff absolutely happens, right? But at the same time, I think it's important to be able to admit when you're wrong. It's certainly okay when you make mistakes. And I'm just going to say it right here. I don't think I should have had Cole Anthony number one on my board overall. I saw a dynamic three-level scoring guard who wasn't afraid to take or make big shots. He add, in my opinion, a better understanding of running the point guard position that I think a lot of people wanted to give him credit for. A lot of people looked at his play at UNC. They thought he was a very selfish guard, a very selfish player, didn't have the passing chops necessary to command an NBA offense. If everything's about me, 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 especially the type of guard that he is at his size, how's that going to translate to the NBA game? I actually thought last year in his rookie year, I didn't have much to any problem with how he commanded the offense, the type of reads that he made within the offense, his playmaking ability out of pick and roll sets. I didn't have issues with any of that. I thought that he took a very balanced approach. And certainly in the second half of the year, I thought he actually hunted for better shots than, than, than what he did initially coming in, having this bravado about him, like I'm the 15th pick. I need to prove that I can make these shots. I need to prove that I can handle this scoring load. I need to justify the thought that I had that I should have been a top five pick in the draft. And when you play to that kind of a narrative, when you 
play into that public perception. It can really come back and bite you in the ass and take away your efficiencies as a scorer, as a playmaker. It can get you in a bad spot with your teammates from a chemistry standpoint. Your, your locker room can look around at you and say, hey, why are you not getting me involved? Why are you not doing what coach wants you to do? All of those things can, can come into play. I'm not saying any of that came into play in Orlando because, again, I, I don't think that it did. But you watch Cole Anthony on the offensive end, and you can take a look at some of the percentages. He shot under 40% from the field. He shot under 34% from three. He did shoot 83% from the free throw line, which is always encouraging. It's, it's usually a direct correlation to how you can end up expanding your range and connecting from three at the NBA level, I guess. Davion Mitchell is just going to be the only player that that doesn't apply to, but usually there's a direct correlation there. But he took so many jump shots where you're like, there's nothing wrong with his mechanics. It's, it, it's a smooth jump shot. It looks good coming off his fingertips. And for whatever reason, it, it, it goes in and out. It's short. They'll have an errant shot or two that clanks off the backboard. And it's just like he's putting up bricks. He'll, he'll have these ugly games where he just cannot buy a shot. And, and I'm not sure what exactly could be there mentally. I can tell you, he's, he's not afraid. None of that stopped him from shooting. He wasn't afraid to shoot the basketball because he kept doing it. He took almost 12 shots per game as a rookie. I mean, I, I can assure you that is, if I have to take a look here, that's third most amongst rookies. So he was only behind Anthony Edwards and LaMelo Ball. And I understand that Markel Fultz got hurt, so Cole Anthony got thrown into the lineup as a starting point guard. But he took a lot of shots for that team that just he could not get them to fall. And then you see him in summer league this year. and. I understand it's summer league. You can't just let everything be judged off of summer league performance. But at the same time, when you're a sophomore player coming into Vegas, you expect to dominate. You expect to have that mindset like, okay, this coaching staff is probably going to put as much on my plate as I can handle because they want to see me excel in a big way. They want me to justify being in the rotation next year in a more prominent way. They want me to earn my way as a second-year player. And Cole Anthony did the furthest thing from that as far as shooting and, and scoring the basketball. I was horrified with some of what I saw in Summer League. He went back to a lot of bad habits. He did not look like the player that I saw play for Orlando in the second half of the year last year where he was much more in command over the offense. He wasn't looking to hunt for his shot every trip down the floor, even every other trip down the floor. He showed some of those bad habits coming through from his days in North Carolina, and inevitably what he did show to some scouts, even going back to Oak Hill. And that's a problem. You can't, you can't be going back to bad habits. You can only look to move forward. And again, it was a summer league setting, but you can argue that summer league settings are perfect for guards like him. They're, they're tailor-made 
for shot makers to go out there, chuck up 20 to 25 shots per game and, and just pour the points on the other team because you don't have a lot of practice time. You don't have a lot of familiarity with the teammates you're playing with. Coaches aren't making the offensive sets complicated. They're running very basic concepts to just get you on the NBA floor to try to start figuring out what you can do and what you can't do. And the fact that Cole Anthony couldn't take that bull by the horns and bring it home, I'm sorry. That's that that that's not good. That's not good. That's not going to get it done. So I have him as a tier three guy. Not knocking him down to tier four yet. Tier four would be like sixth man, spot starter, specialist. And then a higher end of tier four, like maybe you are in a starting lineup for a good team, but you're like the fifth guy in the lineup, right? That's what tier four is. Cole Anthony is trending exclusively to that, that sixth man, first guard off the bench territory. And it could be happening sooner rather than later. Cause the last, the last nugget I'll leave about his summer league performance was even RJ Hampton got shut down playing time-wise before Cole Anthony did. Jalen Suggs and RJ Hampton both got shut down before he did. That that should not have happened. If Cole Anthony was the player that I initially projected him to be, then he should have absolutely risen above that. And, And I hope that any criticism he's heard over his rookie year, I hope any criticism he's heard over his summer league performance, I hope he takes all of that in stride Stays in the gym working. I I know that he's a very hardworking kid. He's a good kid. Great head on his shoulders. That's a big reason why I did like him as high as I did to begin with, because I thought I saw real leadership in him from the point guard position. But this is going to be a real test, because if he doesn't come out of the gates guns blazing for that Orlando team, they're 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 completely jammed up in the backcourt. Fultz. Colts will come back. They just drafted Jalen Suggs. They got RJ Hampton in a trade. Like, they still have Gary Harris on the roster. Like, right now, there is a situation where Cole Anthony is the fifth guard on that team. And you'd have to figure that they probably don't want to go that deep at the guard position. So if they're sold on those other four guys as being more part of their plans, even if Gary Harris is the guy that's traded because he's the vet, they look to move him for whatever they can get for him. Like, that would still put Cole as, like, the the fourth guard fighting for the third. And that's still a bench player. So I'm going to be really curious to see what Cole Anthony does this year to see if he can outlive my current expectations for him because they, they, they have dropped. They have dropped significantly. A lot of people could probably comment when I put this podcast out and say, we could have told you this was coming, dude. Well, that's part of being wrong as a scout. I I don't usually have a ton of misses, but when I do miss, I usually miss pretty bad. I'll ask somebody like Josh Jackson, for example. So I will take that loss in stride if it becomes a loss because none of this should even be about wins or losses. It shouldn't be about right or wrong. We're doing the best that we can to evaluate the talent in front of us and learn from any mistakes that we might make during that process. That's what it's all about. So Cole Anthony's tier three, Patrick Williams, 
Chicago forward. Did some really good things for the Bulls last year. Clearly, they want him to be a little more involved this year, or they wanted him to at least prove that he could begin to handle a little more because they, he was one of those guys, and, and there will be quite a few guys here that we talk about in this tears pot today, but he was one of those guys that Chicago threw the kitchen sink at him to see what exactly he could handle. He took a healthy volume of shots out in Las Vegas. He was able to get to more of those mid-range pull-ups that we showed that he showed signs of in his rookie year. Listen, he did shoot 39% from three-point range last year. I'd say that that's a pretty dang good number. He did rate out in the 73rd percentile on medium shots, shooting 46% on those shots. There were multiple categories that I could point to where he had some defensive success. And we know that he's going to keep getting better on that end because of his physical talent, his measurables, his intensity on that end of the floor. I, I really like the player that Patrick Williams is becoming. I just don't know if it's any better than being like a tier three type guy for me. And tier three, if you're in a tier three, that's still a very high compliment for me. If you can be a starter in the NBA at any point in your career, that should be considered a massive, massive compliment. Isaac Okoro for the Cleveland Cavaliers is also in this tier. Did some good things defensively for that team last year. Did not fail handling the ball in different situations. We even saw him run a few pick and roll sets with a little bit of success. I know that he's not this incredibly crafty um, dribbler, nor should he have to be because he's he's a wing. He's not a full-time guard, but it is encouraging to see some of those things come out with the ball in his hands. He's not just only doing things off the ball. He's not only breaking out in transition, only cutting to the basket. But the shooting, the shooting needs a lot of work. It needs a lot of work. He shot 29% from three-point range. He only shot 73% from the free throw line. And if you go through and look at some of the numbers by synergy, he was in the 21st percentile on catch and shoot looks, 16th percentile in that medium shot area, 21st percentile from that longer shot area and in the 14th percentile um, shooting jump shots off the dribble. So his shot making, his shot making definitely needs a lot of work. There's no doubt about it, but given his potential two-way impact, it was only his rookie year. I like what Cleveland's doing. I like what they're building. I'm all, I'm all for Isaac Okoro. I'm still going to keep him in this tier three here. On Yekha Okongwu. So he was drafted to Atlanta, had some injury troubles in his rookie year. But when he did see time on the court, he shot 64% from the field, a 16.8 PER. That's another one of those PERs that, that, that's above league average. 65.5% true shooting, 88th percentile in terms of total offense, 86th percentile in post-ups, 91st percentile scoring out of, out, out of pick-and-roll offense, the 94th percentile in transition. And he has a number he, – he has a few defensive metrics that you can point to as well. But really, it was about how efficient of an offensive player he was. And the same thing going to be said about Isaiah Stewart when I get to him in a little bit. But these big men who came into the league, athletic rim-running players, they play hard, they understand their role, 
They're not trying to do too much on the court. They're only trying to do what they're good at. There, there's always a home on an NBA team for those types of guys. I can assure you that at some point, I don't know if it's going to be for Atlanta because they have such a crowded front court, but at some point that guy's going to be a starter on a really good NBA team. Now, he was pretty much money on virtually anything he did around the basket. The jump shot, I thought it was going to be non-existent coming in. It quite literally was non-existent in the NBA. He was in the fourth percentile for jump shots on very minimal attempts, shooting 27% on those looks, didn't even register um, a percentage for catch and shoot. The, 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 the jump shot, they're, they're bringing that along slowly for good reason. Um, but Anyeka Kongu is definitely going to be a player in this league. And a lot of people had him as the best big in the draft class. There, there's a really, really good segment of people that had him over James Wiseman because of how intelligent he was as a basketball player at USC. You saw some of the small ball defensive versatility that you see from Bam Adebayo down in Miami. There's a lot of things to like about a Congress game. I really liked what he showed in flashes and spurts in his rookie year. I cannot wait to see him get more opportunities, perhaps this year, perhaps down the line. He's, he's going to be an impact player in the NBA. Killian Hayes on the Detroit Pistons. Man, some of his numbers, and, and, and I do not use statistical outputs to judge rookies, or you, at least I usually don't use them to judge them harshly, because when you're looking at a service like Synergy and you're putting these players in percentiles, these are percentiles amongst their peers, which are NBA players. These are the best basketball players in the world. So... If you're honestly expecting these guys to rate out very high by percentile in a lot of these statistical categories on synergy, you're kidding yourself. Because going up against players in these same categories like LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis, like that, that's the type of competition they're rating out at. So I don't expect perfection in their percentiles. Usually for rookies, if you're like if you're anywhere between like 30 to 60th percentile in a category that's that's like the bottom end of average to like good like that that's fine that's fine i don't expect greatness from you in, in a bunch of different areas in your rookie year no one really should if you're like 70th percentile or above in certain categories that i'll highlight on my spreadsheet in front of me for example that means you you killed it for being a rookie you killed it in that area and i expect further growth in those areas Man, Killian Hayes had some stinkers on this sheet. He was in the fifth percentile scoring out of pick-and-roll offense as the ball handler. The first percentile, one, not one zero, one, scoring in transition. Seventh percentile in isolations, including passes. Fourteenth percentile in pick-and-rolls, including passes. Was only in the 15th percentile shooting jump shots. Ninth percentile shooting off the dribble did not register above the 16th percentile shooting in short, medium, or long-range distances. That's an issue. The jump shooting is an issue, and you saw it 
in doses at summer league this year when, when he was trying to gel better with Kate Cunningham, they put the ball in Killian's hands a lot to run pick and roll offense. And there were way too many times he would go to these step backs that he would settle for errant and off balance jump shots. Settled way too often. And I know he had, he was another guy who had an off balance rookie year, dealt with some injuries. But if he can't effectively score the basketball and distribute without turning it over at a high rate, I know the conversation is about Killian and Cade working together as a backcourt. That narrative will flip. That narrative will 100% flip, and Killian will not be a starting guard in that rotation. I, to me, the only thing that's really his saving grace is some of the some of the damage that he did from a defensive standpoint. He was not a bad defender. He only rated out in the 36th percentile in terms of total defense, but he was in the 75th percentile defending spot-ups, 91st percentile defending around the basket, 81st percentile defending catch-and-shoot looks, so he closed out on jump shots. There was some fight there in a few pretty good categories for him to show some fight defensively, but some work does need to be done there as well. He needs to improve his defensive awareness when he gets caught on an island. How does he respond? There is some work that needs to be done. And I'm not going to demote him to a tier four just yet, because I think that give him another year with this team, I think some of the shooting stuff will figure itself out. But if it doesn't, this was another guy that I could point to and say, yep, you got to move him down here. Obi Toppin for the New York Knicks had an up and down rookie year just because of playing time. Tibbs usually does not love playing rookies, although he played a rookie quite a bit that, that we will eventually get to in Emmanuel quickly. Um, but Obi is a curious case because there are some things he does well. He can be a good cutter to the basket. He can be a roll man. He can be a threat in transition. Lob guy. Vertical spacer. But he showed some promise in college shooting the basketball from range. You get worried when you see that sometimes. Because if you don't believe that the player is a volume shooter and all of a sudden the offense turns into, hey, we're just going to put this guy in the corner He's proven he can space the floor for us in college. Uh, we we think we can we think he can do it at the NBA level. Let's see how many jump shots he can he can take. Let's see how much the defense respects him when he shoots those jump shots. Obi Toppin is not a volume jump shooter. I'm sorry, he's not. They tried to make him into that again in summer league. Sure, a lot of his scoring averages, a lot of his raw numbers look good in Vegas, but his percentages were not good for range. He should not be just standing in the corner waiting to catch the ball to fire it up. That, that is not how Obi Toppin should be used on offense. When they got him running out in transition, when they got him cutting to the basket, when they got him active as a role man, he looked a lot better as an NBA player. He looked a lot more comfortable. You just tell him the look on his face. He doesn't even look comfortable shooting like 10 threes a game. He doesn't look comfortable doing that. I I cannot for the life of me understand why that seems to be the type of player that the Knicks want Obi Toppin to be for them. Just a pure floor spacer when he can be used in so many different ways that are a lot more interesting and just space down the corner. So because I think that there's more to unlock with Obi's game, 
depending on the role that he's given. That's why I'm going to have him in this tier three. I still think he can be a starting NBA player, but yeah, that, that up and down rookie season last year, not getting a lot of playing time when people were picking him to win rookie of the year because they thought he was the most quote unquote NBA ready player coming in. Yeah. There are some concerns to take away from that. Absolutely. There are. So let's move to Denny Avdia, Washington Wizards forward, who I had third overall on my board last year. Clearly moves down a little bit. I still see him as a starting level player. But the jump shooting was a little erratic last year. He only shot 42% from the field, 31.5% from three, 64% from the line. A lot of the jump shooting metrics you can go to on synergy. Spoiler alert, he didn't rate out well there necessarily either they didn't put the ball in his hands a lot to handle it. a lot of playmaking duties out of pick and roll etc some of the things that you saw from him overseas a big reason why teams were so intrigued myself included this 610 ball handling forward who can make everyone else around him better if he starts making any sort of set shots or doing some things off the dribble i mean any of that's gravy but as long as he can operate within pick and roll get to the basket get to the free throw line finish around the basket and then hold his own defensively at his size to the point where a few more years down the road, now you're further into his development. Now hopefully he's improved his jump shot by then. And then you start to see that take off. That's really like the, the Danilo Gallinari kind of ceiling that I envisioned for, for Denny Opian. I, I think it's still there. I definitely think it's still there. It's just clearly going to take a little more time for, for him to really bring that jump shot around. But Gallinari hasn't always been a, a lights-out shooter. That's something that happened later in his career. Maybe he could have gotten there sooner because he is such a naturally talented player, but he's dealt with so many injuries in his career. But I still think that outcome's possible for, for Denny, and that's why I'm going to leave him in this Tier 3. Devin Vassell, San Antonio Spurs wing. I know Coach Thorpe is incredibly high on Mr. Vassell for his potential two-way impact that he brings. Ironically, one of the biggest positives that teams pointed to when he was in college at Florida State was his ability to rise from the mid-range and be able to knock down a mid-range shot off the bounce and also obviously make set shots from three, make catch-and-shoot looks. He did not do that well in his first year in the NBA. Only shot 31.5%. Excuse me. He only shot 34.7% from three-point range. So a little under league average. But when you dig into the actual percentiles behind those shots, he was only in the seventh percentile on, on medium-range jumpers. He was in the 41st percentile on long-range jumpers. 36 percentile and catch and shoot looks. So clearly not everything with his jump shot, in my opinion, could have been as good as advertised. Now, are some of those numbers terrible? Absolutely not, especially the raw number, almost 35% from three-point range. I expect that to keep upticking, and that's why I think that he definitely has a home as a starter in the NBA because his length, his awareness defending off the ball like a ball hawk, yeah, he's... He's definitely 3 and D. I think a lot of people saw him as like this 3 and D type player coming in the coming into the league. If 
any of that other stuff comes around with him shooting off the bounce, if he can create a little bit more off the bounce, if any of the passing comes to life, if he becomes a better finisher around the basket, if any of that stuff happens to coincide with his three-point, three-and-D-type game, it's just gravy on top. Devin Vassell is already going to be a good player. Just give him enough time. He, he, he's definitely going to be a good player for, for years to come. Tier three guy for me. Isaiah Stewart. Detroit Pistons, big man. Eight points, seven rebounds per game last year. 1.3 blocks per game. That was the best number amongst rookies. Almost 60% true shooting percentage. Another guy who had an above league average PER, 16.4. 79th percentile on post-ups. 81st percentile on post-ups, including passes, which is a really good number. Somebody else um, that, that we'll talk about eventually was pretty good out of the post as far as passing the basketball. 80th percentile in total defense. 93rd percentile defending spot-ups. 81st percentile defending roll men out of the pick and roll. 82nd percentile defending jumpers and 88th percentile closing out to defend catch-and-shoot looks. Isaiah Stewart is a defensive menace. We knew how hard of a worker he was coming into the NBA. He is the he was the hardest runner end-to-end of the four that I saw last year from a big man. And it's really funny. Now they bring in another guy who they did give a two-way contract to, Luca Garza, in Summer League. He was the guy... I saw who was definitely giving the most effort getting up and down the floor. But another rim runner who understands who he is, where he needs to be, and how he can impact the game just doing the most simple things. Here's the kicker, though. Here's the kicker with Isaiah Stewart. We can compare him to Onyeka Kongu. We can compare him to another guy, Precious Chua, that I'll get to. This guy actually has a jump shot. 33% from the league. So not too far under league average from three-point three range. He was in the 62nd percentile shooting jump shots this year. 42nd percentile shooting catch-and-shoot shots. And he didn't register enough looks off the dribble to register a percentile ranking by synergy, but he did shoot... 50% on the minimal attempts that he took. If Isaiah Stewart's jump shooting is real, then I actually think he graduates to be in the second best big in this class. Really, it's between Okongwu and Stewart for me. Who's going to develop more of a jump shot quicker? Who's going to be able to do more things on the court for their team offensively? Because defensively, I think Stewart may actually be better at this moment in time than Okongwu. I think Okongwu can absolutely pass him in that area as well. But Stewart is not this, this immobile, purely traditional big man. He plays that traditional big man role, but he moves really well for his size. I like Isaiah Stewart a lot. And I like this other guy too, City Bay, who shot the ball well outside for the Pistons, shot... Um, 38% from three-point range, 84% from the free-throw line, took a lot of jump shots, made a lot of jump shots, was exclusively a jump shooter, did not finish well around the basket, did not take many two-point shots in general. 
particularly around the basket. But again, when we talk about these, these starter caliber players, these three and D type guys, Sadiq Bey was as good as anyone else in his draft class in that category last year. I only expect his performance to improve. Now you're bringing in another guy like Kate Cunningham who can get Sadiq Bey the ball where he likes it. And it's funny, in college, he had more of a mid-range game. He wasn't exclusively a three-point gunner. He had some work going to some fadeaway jumpers out of the post. He could do a few things pulling up from the mid-range. You started to see a little bit of that in summer league. He was given more of the freedom to, to do that for the Pistons summer league team. Mixed results, but I'm glad that he was at least taking a lot of those shots because there still is more to his game to be tapped into. Zeke Bay and Isaiah Stewart, I think, are going to be starters in Detroit for, for years to come, along with Kate Cunningham. Like you Now you have three legitimate young starters, the fourth as Jeremy Grant, who's a veteran, but he certainly earned the contract that he ate. He's been phenomenal for the Pistons since he got there. So now it's really about figuring out who's that fifth guy. Is it Killian? Can Killian and Cade work together? Can they balance each other out? Can they play to each other's strengths with somebody else? And Pistons got to figure out who that fifth guy is. But they, maybe not this year, but but next year, I would not be shocked if they're challenging for a playing spot. Tyrese Maxey, 76ers guard. I got to keep this podcast moving. I still got pulling way too many guys to talk about. Listen, Maxey's been talked about in trade packages. There's been a lot of rumors that if Ben Simmons is leaving the city of Philadelphia, Maxey's going to be on his way out as well as a clutch client. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but what I do know is that this kid is a dynamic basketball player. Shot the ball and, and had some metrics, encouraging metrics last year. 46% from the field, 87% from the free throw line. 75th percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets as the ball handler. The one that jumps out to me, which is interesting, 97th percentile scoring out of handoffs. He is one of the best handoff guys on the team right now with him and Joel Embiid as the big man. You get Maxi going downhill. He is such a dynamic guard, such a crafty guard. He can go to his floater from the free throw line and in. He can pull up for a jump shot. He's quick enough to get around you. Maxi is a really interesting offensive player, as tough and competitive as they come. No, he's nothing to write home about defensively. He struggled mightily in certain areas defensively last year because he's not the biggest guy, but ideally he's your point guard. And how many great defensive point guards do we honestly have in the NBA? They're usually going to be more offensive-minded. And the way that Maxi proved that he's going to keep improving his offensive arsenal He's going to continue to try to extend that range out the three-point. If he really puts together this dynamic three-level offensive attack and he improves his playmaking, he improves making reads and finding teammates, I mean, yeah, that, that's going to be that, that's going to be one hell of a player that Philly can either have or they can use him as a dynamic trade chip. RJ Hampton, I don't have a ton to say about him because he didn't necessarily play a lot last year for Denver, and then he ended up getting moved to Orlando. He's, he is still a Tier 3 for me. Had him as a top-10 guy last year for the draft. I mean, his athleticism, his ability to create and operate in transition, he is still a blur out there. 
shot it fairly well from the field, 43.5% from the field, 31% from three-point range. That can certainly improve. The jump shooting everywhere can improve catch-and-shoot looks off the bounce. The shot's really going to be the biggest thing that makes or breaks it for RJ Hampton. I actually think he's perfectly fine operating, creating for others out of pick-and-roll sets. But it's it's going to be the jump shooting, and then it's going to be a c- continued improvement on the defensive end. He's a big kid, 6'5", long guard. He needs to be able to make an impact defensively. He's not the smaller guard like, like Maxi, who we don't necessarily expect those things from. RJ Hampton needs to put more of an emphasis improving on the defensive end. Jaden McDaniels, one of my favorite guys last year who I had as a lottery grade all year long, never backed down from it. Not to say that I need to be right, but Jaden McDaniels, he found a role. He embraced it. I love a lot of the stuff that he did last year. He shot 36% from three-point range. He averaged the block a game, 98th percentile scoring off screens, 82nd percentile scoring off handoffs. He embraced an off-ball role. He shored up his corner three-point shooting, shot it well from the corners, took what was given to him offensively, and then played his tail off defensively, flying all over the place, making plays, blocking shots, swatting shots away, grad, playing passing lanes, stealing the basketball. You name it, he did. He did it at some point last year. And the Timberwolves have a legitimate 4-3, 3-4 way forward in Jaden McDaniels. I cannot wait to see how he keeps growing. Saw him hit that buzzer beater out in Las Vegas. He was really happy after that one. And he should be because he he's going to be an exciting, dynamic two-way player. I don't know how good he becomes offensively from from like a volume perspective. But what I will say about his talent is that Jaden McDaniels, other other than the Cole Anthony stuff coming true, because I, I had already called that. If he Cole Anthony, if I was doing this last year, it would have been a tier two. Besides him, there was one other guy that I had to point to out of all the guys that we just got done talking about who could make a leap into tier two. I think it's Jaden McDaniels. Kid's going to be good. Kid is definitely going to be good. And then the last guy I have in tier three, Desmond Bain. I mean, what did this guy do last year shooting the basketball? 47% from the field, 43% from three, 82% from the free throw line, 81st percentile in terms of total offense, all of his shooting numbers across the board. There's a lot of green on a sheet. Some mixed results defensively, but he does compete. He does play tough. He's a big, stocky two-guard Combo, I guess I should say, and, and and Memphis wants to have him operate as more of a combo. They they threw him in a lot more pick and roll in summer league. I think that's a development. That's something they want to see from him next year is really handle more of the brunt of the offense when when he gets in games off the bench than necessarily just you know be that guy that that just spots up in the corner, you know, hits the open three point shot. Right? I think they they want more from Desmond Bain. They expect more from him, and I definitely think he can deliver. So tier four guys. 11 guys, 
And then the rest that I graded out are in tier five and tier six. Those are going to be more honorable mentions. I won't spend as much time going through their games specifically. Malachi Flynn, Raptors guard, top end of tier four. And when I say that, I go back to what I said earlier, that a top end tier four guy can be like a fifth starter on like a really good team, right? Like he he's not always going to be the first or the fourth option, but he belongs in that starting lineup. He can definitely be the fifth guy. I, I still think Malachi Flynn can be a starting point guard in the NBA. I think the Toronto Raptors believe that as well. I, the Toronto Raptors, at some point may have him as the starting point guard next to Fred Van Vliet. I know everybody thinks, oh, Scotty Barnes is going to be the point guard. Well, Scotty Barnes doesn't have to be the point guard. Do I want him being a full-time point guard? I don't know if I do. But Malachi Flynn, offensive improvement is definitely to be expected. Shot the ball really well out in Las Vegas from all over the floor. I expect all of his percentages to uptick. Has a lot of green defensively. And I know that defensive metrics can sometimes be skewed depending on who you're playing next to, the team that you have around you. But 75th percentile total defense, 76th defending spot-ups, 97th defending handoffs, 95th defending in isolation, 85th defending around the basket, 82nd defending all jump shots off the dribble. That's a lot of areas that I just pointed out that were 75th percentile or above. The kid's a scrapper. He's a winner. I love his prospects as a potential starter down the road. Worst case scenario, in my opinion, first guard off the bench. Kenyon Martin Jr., Houston Rockets forward. Shot almost 37% from three-point range last year. Rated out in the 72nd percentile in terms of total offense. 90th percentile. Scoring, operating as the role man in pick and roll sets. He is one of the best athletes in this entire class. He is dynamic. He's smart. He moves without the basketball. He plays well defensively without the basketball. Great weak side shot blocker for his size. And if the shooting stuff keeps coming around, if that three-point shot is real, you want to talk about excellent stretch options at like the four spot. Kenny Morin Jr., Man, he is he is something to watch in Houston. I enjoyed seeing him out in Summer League. Just, again, being up close with these guys, seeing how high this man actually leaps off the floor. Holy cow. He is as dynamic of an athlete as they come, and he's going to be in the NBA for a while. Jalen Smith and Josh Green, I don't have a ton to say about them for this exercise in particular because they didn't see the floor a lot much at all last year i'm still going to keep them in tier four based on where i view them from a draft grades perspective jalen smith still has promise to stretch big josh green still has a ton of promise as one of the best defensive wings in this draft as long as the three-point shot comes around i see no reason why he can't be one of those guys that challenges for a starting spot for for years in the nba kyra lewis the New Orleans Pelicans point guard, or guard, I should say, especially if they keep playing points eye on. The thing that impressed me most about Kyrie Lewis, and I said this on the most recent podcast that I just did with the overstated NBA crew, the thing I love most about Kyrie Lewis is that when Zion did have the ball in his hands, 
making plays for others. Kyra was the most willing cutter I saw on that team. He's definitely the fastest guy on his team. So if you match speed with the willingness to cut, you can destroy defenses with one of the most simple play types within half court offense. You can destroy them. You can blitz them. They don't know when they don't know when it's coming. And then better yet, once he gets the jump shot to really come around, he shot 33% last year for three-point range. Once he gets more of the jump shot to come around, then teams really have to close out on him and play him tight. And he's going to be able to get around virtually anybody he wants. He's that level of speedster with the ball in his hands. I, I really like his, his, his upside as like a first guard off the bench, scoring type, can play a little bit of defense. The thing about him, though, is that I don't think he's a natural distributor in the basketball. I don't think he's a natural point guard. I know he showed a lot of good things on tape at Alabama, but just what I've seen from him in the NBA, I don't think he's ready for that, at least not ready quite yet. I think he's much better sort of playing the point guard spot, but playing next to somebody who's initiating more of the offense, like having him in the lineup when Zion's in there, having him in the lineup when even Brandon Ingram's still in there, or Nikhil Alexander-Walker, or that'd be really small backcourt to play him next to Devontae Graham for, for stretches. Maybe they can even do that for stretches until he's a lot more comfortable running offense himself. So that's why I see Kyra as, as a tier four guy more of a first guy off the bench, but I first guard off the bench, excuse me. But I will say I, I, I liked what I saw. I liked what I saw from Kyra Lewis last year. We can continue to build on some of those things that I laid out. He has a path to be a pretty decent player in the NBA. Precious Achua, Toronto Raptors center, was a Miami Heat big man, got traded as part of the Kyle Lowry deal. Now he comes to Toronto where he's just playing with all of these jumbo players you saw him in summer league playing next to Scotty Barnes and Delano Banton. The, the, the size and the versatility that Toronto will have next year when you throw in Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi along with those guys, like they could trot out this, this stupidly massive lineup and Achua would fit right in. Nothing more special than your, your traditional rim-running athletic big man who can protect the rim, block shots defensively, et cetera, et cetera. One metric I do want you to keep an eye on, though, I mentioned this. Um, it's really, really interesting when you take a look. 73rd percentile post-ups, including passes. 68th percentile isolations, including passes. So when he gets put on an island, when he has to make a decision with the ball in his hands, he can actually do it. And just putting another guy in the lineup who has size, who can, who can grow into not initiating offense, but can grow into at least redirecting the ball, getting it where it needs to go versus trying to put it on the deck when he doesn't need to, and maybe doesn't have the tightest handle and defenses are able to key in on that and knock the ball away. Another guy who has size, who, won't turn the ball over a ton and can give you the sort of offensive value around the basket and, and the defensive value that he brings as well. Definitely keep an eye on Precious Achua's continued development out in Toronto. He, again, he's not a one through four starter, but he can definitely be like the fifth starter 
on, on a good team. Emmanuel quickly, New York Knicks guard, got a ton of playing time relative to what Tom Thibodeau usually likes to play rookies for, 11 points per game. Shot under 40% from the field, but did shoot almost 39% from three, 89% from the line. Another guy with an above league average PER, 15.8, 55.7 true shooting percentage, 78 percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets. As the ball handler, listen, Emmanuel quickly, there, there is a lot to like about his game, particularly his three-point shooting off the move, off the catch, off the bounce. He can shoot it from virtually anywhere. He has arguably the deepest floater in the NBA, that thing. While he didn't make a ton of them at a high rate, I think that was more of the volume that he took those shots at. But he proved that he can knock a floater down from even slightly behind the free throw line. That is a deadly weapon to have in today's NBA, especially when you consider quickly isn't the biggest guard. Not going to expect much from him defensively. Really, the thing I want to watch going into year two is how does he continue to operate the offense when they put him in pick and roll sets? Is he immediately wired to try and shoot and score out of those looks? Or does he try and hit the roll man a little more frequently with the pocket pass? Does he try and whip the ball to an open shooter when, when, when there is an opening in the defense? Does he keep his head up and is he looking to make plays more often for his teammates than just score? I want to see more of that from quickly and see him balance a little more of that. Speaking of balancing that exact thing, Peyton Pritchard, another tier four guy, guard for the Boston Celtics, shot the hell out of the ball last year, percentage-wise. Also shot the hell out of the ball at Summer League until he, he met off night, Mr. Davion Mitchell, and he was shut down. 41% from three last year, 89% from the free throw line, 58.2 true shooting percentage. 74th percentile scoring out of spot-ups, 83rd percentile scoring out of handoffs, 83rd percentile. Here we go. Here's a stat you didn't expect. See, 83rd percentile scoring off of offensive rebounds and putbacks. That's fun. 84th percentile isolations, including passes. 51st percentile pick and rolls, including passes. 83rd percentile on jump shooting overall. 93rd percentile on catch and shoot looks. Shooting almost 46% off the catch. The kid is a sniper. I had him as a priority second-round guy heading into the draft last year. My biggest knock on him was exactly that, just balancing out more of his playmaking, not being as much of a gunner, not being so trigger-happy, because when he's not, when he's playing within himself and within the offense, and those looks from deep range are shots that he's stepping into not just with confidence, but within the flow of the offense. Yeah, obviously he's a dynamic and deadly weapon for the Celtics to have off the bench. Not a starting point guard, borderline miserable defensively when you have a larger sample size on him, but you can certainly put on the tape. There will be moments on tape where he is absolutely up in somebody's grill because he's that competitive on that end. He's at least not going to let somebody push him around. So Peyton Pritchard, as with a lot of these guys we've talked about, long-term guys in the NBA. Teo Maladon for the Oklahoma City Thunder. I had him as a late first-round grade. Had some up-and-down performances in Oklahoma City last year, but that whole team was, quote-unquote, in rebuilding. They're going to continue to be rebuilding. Not a lot of familiarity with that roster, a lot of young pieces around him. 
there was only so much he was going to be able to do from a playmaking perspective. Was certainly interesting scoring in the mid-range. I mean, he shot 33.5% from three-point range, 70, almost 75% from the line. But he was in the 91st percentile on medium-range shots, shooting 52.2% on those looks. That's pretty good. And he was in the 60th percentile on all jump shots off the dribble. So a lot of that mid-range type craft, some of the things that if you go back and listen to interviews about Tony Parker, how uh, obviously Tony Parker is going to, you know, be, be room for, for, for his home guy coming from his team. But that was a lot of what he said about Teo Maladon was that he was a crafty mid-range type guy, reminded him some of Tony himself. Never going to say that Teo Maladon is going to be like Tony Parker, but you saw some of that mid-range type craft if you watched enough of his game last year. So I'll be curious to see how much more of an efficient playmaker and three-point shooter he becomes next year. And if he can add anything else on the defensive end as well. Xavier Tillman is my last guy in tier four, big man out of Memphis. Another one of those priority second round grades that I had, which by the way, if we take a look, I had Emmanuel quickly, Peyton Pritchard and Xavier Tillman all as guys that you should definitely be monitoring and or priority guys in the second round. Yet they've clearly exceeded my expectations. Because by having them in a tier four, again, I'm admitting that if they they end up being on the higher end of that tier, that they can work their way into a starting spot, or at the very least, they're like six men. We're not talking about guys who I have pegged in later tiers who are like seventh through tenth men. Um, or seventh through eleventh men, excuse me. These are these are legitimate, important contributors to their team. And Xavier Tillman, I called him an enforcer before the draft. He was more than that. He he wasn't just an enforcer and a rebounder. He was hitting some good mid-range shots at times for that team. He was making some plays for others at times for that team. Very close to being to having a league average PER 14.7 in that department, 60.5 true shooting percentage, 79th percentile in terms of total offense, also ran the floor really well, 87th percentile in terms of scoring and transition, 87th percentile on runners and 88th percentile of scoring around the basket. So maybe enforcer is still a good word to use for him, but he was a little more dynamic than that for Memphis, was always one of the smartest players on the floor. Memphis just, they, they continue to do it. They just keep racking up really good draft picks having one of the deepest teams of NBA caliber players in the entire NBA, Xavier Tillman just gets added to that list. Keeps getting added to that list. So now we have, and I'm going to go through these guys pretty quickly. We have tier five and tier six. And these are guys who I see as bench type contributors in the NBA. So like if, if they're going to be in the NBA, they're like your seventh through ninth man. In the case of tier six, like a, like a, back-end bench type guy. So Jemias Ramsey's on this list. I loved a lot of what I saw from him out in Summer League for the Sacramento Kings. I hope that he gets some sort of more consistent bench role for them. Aaron Neesmith, his case is interesting. I see some of it defensively. I just, 
I don't fully see it offensively. He's not a dynamic mover without the basketball, despite how efficient he can be shooting from three-point range. He still shot on unlimited time last year because of some things going on. He shot 37% from three. I just don't buy how dynamic of an offensive player he can actually be, and that's why I don't have him as high as I might have once had him when I was ranking these guys last year. Now I've seen it on an NBA floor. I don't think he's a level of athlete to to be a starter. Can you put him in for spurts? Can he shoot the piss out of the ball? Absolutely. But more of a bench role. It's why I have him here. Alexi Pokushevsky. Yeah, I'm not a Poku guy. I, I wasn't a Poku guy heading into the draft last year. I, I'm not trying to slander him when I say this. but. By metrics, he was the worst player in the NBA last year. That, to me, was to be expected because I did not think he was ready to play in the NBA. Oklahoma City is going to play whoever they have because they don't care. They're just trying to tank to get a better draft pick or get themselves a better draft position. Poku had some moments last year. He had some moments shooting the basketball. I I don't see him as this awesome dynamic player because of his body his his lack of physicality i just don't see how he holds up in a bigger role for an nba team over the course of an 82 game schedule can you use him off the bench in different spurts absolutely that's why i have him here yudoka azubuki more of the same thing i know utah's really high on him they want him to be uh, a primary backup big man for them this upcoming year so it'll be really interesting to see azubuki with more playing time another one of those ground-bound bigs who I just, I just don't know. I don't know. He, he's a bit of a plotter. I, I don't know how much value he provides when you talk about having to move up and down the floor in a transition game in the regular season. I don't know how much value he provides. He's, he's a guy who deserves to be on an NBA roster like a Luca Garza, but Luca Garza, to me, offers more offensive value than Azubuki does, even though Azubuki, yeah, at one point in the summer league, is shooting like 80-something percent from the field. Like, he just finishes whatever he gets near the basket, but he can't stretch the floor like a Luka Garza. He is specifically a scorer inside of three feet and a rebounder. Not always the best shot blocker. He was in college because he was that much bigger than everybody else. I'll be curious to see once he has a legitimate role here in the NBA this year, if some of those block percentages and some of those block rates trans out to, to near what they did in college. But bench player belongs in the league. I just, I just don't see him, at least right now, as more than that. Same thing with, with with Tyrell Terry on the guard side as well as Trey Jones. They both have different games. Trey Jones saw, saw a little more of the floor for the Spurs last year. Tyrell Terry really didn't see the floor at all for the Dallas Mavericks. Terry's more of an, an, an off-the-dribble shooter, pick-and-roll playmaker. Trey Jones can be a pick-and-roll playmaker, but he has almost no shooting to speak of. Not really looking to score the basketball. He's looking to set others up, and then he's looking to play tough-as-nails defense. I think Trey Jones with the San Antonio Spurs can earn himself a role at some point. I just don't know when. Vernon Carey for the Charlotte Hornets. Big man. I was not a fan of Vernon Carey coming into the draft. I'm still not a big fan of him. I don't think he shoots the ball well enough to be the advertised stretch big that everybody thinks he is. I don't think he does as good of a job on the glass from going up against NBA level competition that I think he could do athletically. I don't think he's there as a big man. I think he could be outclassed by a number of big men. So 
I'll leave him here as like a bench guy. Maybe he outperforms those expectations, but I'm not a big, not a big Vernon Carey guy. Yamadar did not play in the NBA last year, but he did come over for the Boston Celtics summer league team. Did some decent things there, scoring off the bounce, shooting the basketball in the mid-range, being a playmaker for others, competing on the defensive end. Yamadar can be an NBA guard. I just, again, I, I see him as a bench guy. I don't I don't see Yamadar as a starting guard, but then again, I don't know much of anyone else who does. Isaiah Joe and Paul Reed, two other 76ers rookies last year. Paul Reed just got done putting up ridiculous numbers in the summer league. And you take a look at his efficiency while he didn't play a ton for the 76ers last year, when he did play, he had a 21.2 PER. And I can't weigh that PER as heavily against some of the other guys who played significantly more minutes than Paul Reed, but that number at the same time is significantly higher than anybody else that, that I'm talking about today. So Paul Reed is a walking double-double. If the jump shooting works out, great. He can stretch the floor. But he impacts the game defensively. He rebounds well. He can score around the basket, finish in transition, vertical type guy, long arms. John Hollinger was a fan of Paul Reed for a reason. I like Paul Reed as well. I think he's going to end up playing a role for the 76ers at some point. Isaiah Joe was the 30th guy on my board last year. So he was the last guy I gave a first round grade to. Dynamic shooter. I just wonder if he's a bit of a chucker how much of a basketball player he actually is versus just the guy who can, you know, catch and shoot whatever you want him to. Jordan Nuora is my cutoff point for tier five. I debated having him in tier six, but when you look at his shooting percentages, when he did get some time last year, albeit a lot of garbage time, but 46% for the field, 45% for three, 76% for the free throw line. Those are percentages of, a at the very least bench contributor in the NBA, given his six seven, his bulky frame, his size. You don't always see him being this dynamic offensive weapon. If he, but if he can shoot the ball like that with regularity, as he hopefully gets minutes this year for Milwaukee, that's a player you have coming off your bench in like that seventh to ninth man role. That's a tier five player for me, and then tier six. So guys who. I just don't buy it or they disappointed me last year and I'm not high on their NBA prospects, but Zeke Naji for the Denver Nuggets, Saban Lee for the Detroit Pistons, Nick Richards, also another Charlotte Hornets big man, Skylar Mays for the Atlanta Hawks, CJ Allenby for the Portland Trailblazers, Nico Mannion for the Golden State Warriors, Cassius Winston for the Washington Wizards, and Cassius Stanley from the Indiana Pacers. Now, only one year. I could be wrong saying that I'm not high on any one of those eight guys. I just, right now, if, if you're asking me, like, what's the crop of players who we'd be picking from for who I think is going to be out of the league in, like, four years, we're picking from these Tier 5, Tier 6 guys, and the Tier 6 guys, to me, in my opinion, would be the first guys out. They'll be finding a job overseas, etc. Those are my picks. That's how I would tier these guys now one year later in 2020. That was one hell of a podcast. Thank you as my audience for letting me ramble on about some of these guys and some of the things I learned about them from one year in. Again, 
Thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast, to listening. If you haven't subscribed, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, definitely subscribe to the feed. Got a lot more awesome content coming. Follow us on Twitter, at DraftDeeper. Check out, if you haven't already, my podcast with Chad Ford over on his feed. Again, we went over the top rookies, sophomores, and juniors that we expect to have great years next year in the 2021-22 NBA season. On this very feed, I published the podcast with the Overstated NBA show as we went through our top young cores in the NBA. That was a really fun podcast, but it was also where I announced that this podcast, we're going to try to make this work. We haven't figured out 100% of the technical side yet, but we're going to try to get this podcast and combined feeds. So we're going to be over you're, you're still going to have the same subscription. You're going to find this podcast in all the same places that you did before, but we're also going to be getting this podcast on the overstated NBA shows feed and draft deeper is going to be a part uh, of the overstated podcast network. That's something that I've been talking about with the guys over there, Steve, Brett and Jacob for quite a while now. They were part of the inspiration for me to actually start and do this podcast and start this platform. It's only right that I sync up with them on the podcasting side. And there's going to be a lot more coming from me over on their show, a lot more from them coming over on my show. I'm going to do some more NBA content this year than I did last year. I'm going to love doing it. It's going to be awesome. And then stay tuned for an announcement that I will hopefully be making somewhat soon about where you'll find a lot of my writing stuff this year. I do want to get back into writing that I'm going to have a place to do it. And it's going to be with some awesome people that you already know in the draft community. So definitely keep an eye out for, for when I make that announcement, but thank you again for listening to this podcast. 2019 tier list is next. Can't wait to, to revisit that class, but until then, thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your week.